Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Fade. Wednesday, February 18th, 2015. And no, this is not our light episode today. If we have one, depending on my time, that will be tomorrow. Today's getaway day for me as I travel to Fort Lauderdale for the Liberate Conference. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Yet there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually engage in sound biblical exegesis, look at passages in context to see what God the Holy Spirit has revealed there uh, so that we rightly have the correct sense of what God's Word says and compare that then to what people are saying about God's Word as they rip it from context, as they engage in Bible twisting, reading themselves into the biblical text, reading things into the biblical text that are not there, not paying attention to what the text itself says over and again. You know, what we find is, is that so many of today's popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, authors put out by the evangelical industrial complexes, those that we need to be listening to, those whose books we need to be purchasing that, uh, well, over and again, what's being sold, what's what's being fed to mass Christianity as a whole is not what God's Word says at all. In fact, it's an exercise in false doctrine when you actually listen to them. And so we take the time to show and demonstrate that, well, unfortunately, so many of the most popular people put out there but that we should be listening to, they are not teaching us what God's Word says. And this matters because sound doctrine matters, not because I say so, because Scripture says so. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Now, just so you know, every episode of Fighting for the Faith, unless I say otherwise, actually has a theme. You know, there's something in particular I'm working on. It could be a doctrinal theme. It could be an apologetic theme. It could be an exegetical theme. Uh, it could, you know, it it could be, a, you know, certain things. And what I try to do is, you know, make it so that the different pieces of the program actually work together. This helps you. Yeah, it helps you by kind of inductively or, you know, teaching how 
how biblical discernment works. And, you know, so sometimes if you sit down, you can actually, all right, so what's the theme? You can actually backwards engineer it. Today, no theme. Nope, 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 no theme. Uh, About the only theme is, is that hour number one, everybody is, uh, is somebody that, you know, that evangelicals have heard of. In fact, we are going to begin today's episode of Fighting for the Faith well, with a Rob Bell update, Rob Bell of the emergent church movement, postmodern liberal Rob Bell. And by the way, uh, the emails I'm receiving from Monday's episode of Fighting for the Faith, over and again, people are wondering if what Andy Stanley is doing is leading in the direction of Rob Bell, where he's going to become gay affirming. So uh, so we got, a, we got a Rob Bell update. He was recently on the Oprah program talking about his book, The Zim Zum of Love, uh, with Oprah as well as uh, Rob Bell's wife was with him. And what we're going to do is we're going to listen to a very provocative segment from uh, that Super Soul Sunday uh, episode of uh, you know, that's on the Oprah Winfrey Network and hear what Rob Bell has to say about evangelicalism kind of really being on the cusp of embracing and celebrating same-sex marriage and what he has to say about God's word is, well, eye-opening. In fact, it's very much akin to what we've been hearing from Andy Stanley. So uh, we have a Rob Bell update. We'll switch gears, and we're going to switch gears and listen to um, Beth Moore uh, play the Pharisee card. Yeah. (laughs) In fact, I might—I'll have to do this. On today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, when it goes up at the Fighting for the Faith website— uh, there's an article I have that I keep, you know, in the uh, a different portion of the Fighting for the Faith website called the Pharisee Card, uh, or playing the Pharisee Card. I forget the exact title of it, but I'll link to it with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. If you haven't read it, it it's an article um, that was uh, put out by Todd Wilkin of the uh, of the Issues Etc. radio program. Fantastic program. If you don't listen to it, I strongly recommend that you do. Just look it up at issuesetc.org. Great program. Anyway, um, he, a few years back, wrote uh, an article about playing the Pharisee card. And uh, it's a form of an ad hominem argument. And it's an ad hominem argument in this sense. Listen, you know, there's no point in addressing the substance of a biblical criticism offered by somebody who is a brother in Christ. No, <laughs> no, they're Pharisees. Just you don't don't argue with Pharisees is the way Beth Moore puts it. So we're going to take a look at the text that she's purportedly exegeting on the uh, I think the Life Today television program. Uh, Wednesdays with Beth or Wednesdays in the Word with Beth Moore. And uh, we're going to listen to her playing the Pharisee card and show you that the text that she's supposedly exegeting um, actually doesn't do that. And it shows that she has no desire to actually historically understand who the Pharisees were and why they were so dangerous. So uh, we'll do that. uh, And then we'll switch gears and we will do a uh, Rick Warren update. Somewhere in there, we'll we'll take a break depending on how the program pans out. But let me ask you a question. I know the answer is probably super de duper obvious, but if Rick Warren were to say publicly, and and I'm not neither confirming nor denying that he makes a statement like this in this portion of the sermon that we're going to be reviewing, but if Rick Warren were to say he could, you know, if he could preach the most important sermon that he could ever preach. 
what would it be? Would that sermon be a, a sermon that calls sinners to repent and to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins? Would it be a sermon that exalts Christ in his saving office and proclaims what Jesus has done on the cross for us sinners so that we, we may be reconciled to God by what Jesus did? Would, would it be that or if the most important sermon that, that Rick Warren could possibly ever preach, if he had only one sermon to preach, would it be a, a sermon about finding your purpose? And I know you're sitting there going, you know, Chris, you know, it should be the first one, but why do I have this gut-wrenching feeling down inside of my splogna, which is the Greek word for your guts, uh, that is telling me that if Rick Warren publicly said that the most important sermon he could ever preach, that he would end up preaching, saying that it was a sermon about finding your purpose rather than being brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, yeah. So if you have that, that gut wrenching feeling, you know, if, you know, which kind of begs the question, I mean, you know, pastors, Christian pastors in Christ's church, um, if they were to have one sermon and one sermon only, the most important sermon they could possibly deliver, don't you think it would be a sermon that properly lays out the law so that everybody understands that they stand condemned by by God's law, that they are not righteous, that they are in need of a Savior, and then proclaim Christ and what he's done for us on the cross in his propitiatory, uh, atoning, penal substitutionary a sacrifice and atonement for our sins on the cross. Don't you think if if you know any pastor who calls himself a pastor in Christ church were the most important sermon, the one sermon if he had only one to preach, it would be that one? You know, I'm a pastor and if, you know, if I only had one sermon that I could preach, I wouldn't be telling people to find their purpose. I can tell you that. I would be telling them about the one who bled and died for them. So we're going to listen to uh, Rick Warren in a sermon where he says the most, if he had only one sermon to preach, the most important sermon that he could possibly preach. And we're going to find out what the content of that sermon uh, would be. Then we're going to switch gears and um, and we're going to uh, do a sermon review in hour number two. We're going to head down to Potential Church, uh-huh, down in Florida. And uh, by the way, Potential Church, which means that they changed their, their name years ago from Flamingo Road Baptist Church to Potential Church uh, with the change of leadership over there uh, <clears throat> from Dan Sutherland to uh, Troy Gramling. And uh, no joke, uh, Troy Gramling right now is in a sermon series entitled Yang the Year of the Sheep. <laughs> yes, it is a sermon series themed off of the Chinese New Year. And he's supposedly exegeting his way through that incredible psalm, Psalm 23, um, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yeah, that psalm and uh, what you're going to hear him say in the sermon review is unbelievable. Uh, number one, it's unbelievable that any Christian pastor would theme a sermon series based upon the Chinese New Year. Yes, that's exactly what he did. If you don't believe me, go to Potential Church's website, which, by the way, Potential Church, which means they're not really a church. They're just a church in Potentia. And so we check in with Potential Church from time to time here at Fighting for the Faith to see if they're actually moving towards actually becoming a real church, which would require them to rightly handle God's word, 
properly preach the gospel and why Christ died for our sins. And oh, by the way, in the sermon that we'll be reviewing in hour number two, Troy Gramling says what he thinks Jesus' death on the cross was for. Mm -hmm. And uh, what if I told you that what he says in the sermon is not that Christ died for our sins? Mm-hmm. He died for something else. So we're going to, yeah, no joke, that's what we're going to do in hour number two today. So, you know, some of the things that we're going to hear on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith are so over-the-top, ridiculous, preposterous, bad, miss the point of Scripture altogether that this could be one of those episodes that could potentially be dangerous to your health. And so as a service, we here at Fighting for the Faith, from time to time, we we, uh, we play our standard warning. And so I understand that what we're going to be hearing today is kind of that bad, and uh, we don't want you to actually suffer bodily harm while listening to Fighting for the Faith. So that requires us to do this. Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. Here we go. These are the sounds of the Emergent Postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Doug Paget of the Emergent Church. And this is their rendition of Strauss's Also Sprock Zarathustra. Now, if you don't know anything about postmodernity, you got to understand that postmodernity is, in a sense, a reaction against modernity. And during the time of modernity and the Enlightenment, well, that's when the most amazing classical music was created. But the problem was, is that, well, modernity created this, well, really limited definition of notes and what they should sound like. And so the postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra has, well, freed themselves from this modernist definition of notes, and they are now being led by the Spirit. Uh, Let's listen in as they uh, come to a crescendo here. You know, that cracks me up every time I hear it. Anyway, what we're going to be listening to is, um, you know, former megachurch pastor Rob Bell. That's right. You remember the days when Rob Bell was, well, the darling of evangelicalism, and, you know, he was writing books like Sex God and uh, Velvet Elvis and things like that. You see, all the way back then, I was critiquing Rob Bell. In fact, I was in the public, you know, out on the public uh, internet uh, via my blog warning people that what Rob Bell was was not an actual evangelical Christian, 
but that he was a postmodern liberal and that he was literally leading evangelicalism down the path to postmodern liberalism and that it would end up with him denying Christ's penal substitutionary atonement, denying hell and, and all this kind of stuff because he was attacking and deconstructing sound biblical doctrine. If you remember in the book Velvet Elvis, he was talking about trampoline trampolinianity, uh, the, uh, the this idea that that uh, that you know the doctrines of the Bible are they're really like springs on a trampoline and all God really wants you to do is jump up and down and enjoy life on the trampoline and if the trampoline loses a spring you know like the virgin birth you could still jump up and down on the trampoline and enjoy it because after all I mean even if Jesus really wasn't born of a virgin well you could Christianity would still be the best way to live is the way Rob Bell put it in his book Velvet Elvis. And I recognize that for what it was, just absolute liberal gobbledygook and not true. If Jesus Christ was not born of the Virgin Mary, then he's not the Son of God, and he didn't die for your sins. And Christianity's central claim regarding what Christ did for you on the cross, it's not true. It's just a myth. And uh, so, you know, anyway, all of that's history now, because everybody now knows what Rob Bell is and uh, it, with him appearing, you know, with Oprah and other things like that, I mean, is it any wonder that uh, you know evangelicals are a little bit squeamish to embrace Rob Bell nowadays? Well, his most recent appearance on Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Um, well, yeah, he um, he and his wife further explain their views on same-sex marriage and we'll listen to their views and watch the swipe at God's word as uh, Rob Bell continues to head down the oblivion path as he gets ready to do, well, a swan dive into the lake of fire. And that's literally where he's heading if he doesn't repent and, you know, and trust the truth regarding what Christ is, what the scripture is, and all that kind of stuff. So without any further ado, here is Rob Bell's and his wife's latest appearance on Super Soul Sunday with Oprah Winfrey. Here we go. Marriage, gay and straight, is a gift to the world because the world needs more, not less. Love, fidelity, commitment, devotion, and sacrifice. Yeah, that's um, Rob Bell's wife, Kristen Bell, reading from the book, The Zim-Zum of Love. That's a direct quote from The Zim-Zum of Love. Well, please tell us some more, Rob and Kristen. I think it's great that you all made a conscious choice to include gay marriage in here. Absolutely. Yeah, why? Because one of the oldest aches in the bones of humanity is loneliness. I mean, it's one of the things that goes way, way back. Loneliness is not good for the world. Mm. So, why did you put the, uh, something in your zimzum of love regarding gay marriage? Oh, well, because oh, it's one of the aches in, of the bones of people is loneliness. Yeah. Okay. Um, does so? Do our feelings dictate truth as far as Christian doctrine and what is and what isn't a sin? Hmm, I didn't think that our feelings had any bearing on that. And so, whoever you are, gay or straight, it is totally normal, natural, and healthy to want somebody to go through life with. Yeah, you've got to understand something, Rob. Um, gay isn't a, um, a gender. No, God created humans male and female, and they complement each other. It's funny how that works. 
Um, so gay is not a category of something that God created. Gay is a, um, well, if you would, a result of man's fall into sin. Um, it, yeah, see, let's kind of talk about this for a second here. Let's pretend for a second that there is a guy who's married to a woman. Yeah, it happens, you know, nowadays, not as frequently as it used to. But yeah, there's a guy married to a woman and, you know, the first part of their marriage is wonderful and things kind of go squirrely in their relationship. And now this guy feels like he is in a loveless marriage. This happens. This happens. You know, there, there are people. It could be a girl who, you know, who's feeling it or the guy who's feeling it. He's in it. He claims he's in a loveless marriage. And so he's at the office and the office, you know, the, the people at work, they hire her, her, who, and, you know, you know, he has a conversation with her and he's clearly attracted to her. And wouldn't you know, he and her that, whoo, they connect. I mean, and it's like they could finish each other's sentences and, you know, and that, and, and it's this most exciting, and, and he starts to get that pitter patter feeling inside of him. And, and, you know, and, and then he goes back home to the loveless marriage and can't even get his wife to make eye contact with, with him, yet alone, you know, spend any intimate time together with him. And he's unhappy. He's lonely. Yeah. You know, and, uh, but he goes back to work and she's there. Oh, and, and, and his heart is racing and, he he can't stop peeking at her over the cubicle or something right and uh, and and so that you know they continue to talk and and he finds a way to you know make it so that he takes his lunch is in the lunch room at the same time that she's taking her lunches and and you know and and they start to develop a relationship and of course you know then he goes home and he's lonely and he's in a loveless marriage and and then he goes back to work and oh, oh, it's the best thing ever. And, you know, and so using Rob Bell's logic that you're about to hear here, I mean, loneliness is something that's in the aching of uh, bones here. And, you know, and so using this logic, I mean, we could basically say as Christians, we ought to embrace and celebrate those men and women who are in loveless marriages and who are lonely, who find, well, their soulmates. Uh, whether it's at work, at the office, or somebody at the, at the, uh, at the gym, or somebody that they run into in the course of their life, maybe a, a gal from church or something like that, and and, and so they feel like they're, they're connecting and that they're soul, and they don't have to be lonely anymore, because and so we shouldn't say that that's adultery and that's a sin, um, and it's okay for them to you know divorce their spouse because we wouldn't want them to be lonely now would we no not oh loneliness is an and the world is a better place if people aren't lonely so we should as christians promote and embrace embrace adultery when it's justifiable so that a person isn't lonely yeah that's literally i mean just use the logic of what he puts forward that you're about to hear and you know hey you know there's no right or wrong. There's no sin or anything like that. Ah, no, 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 no. It's we need to. The world is a better place if people aren't lonely. Yeah, forget the fact that you know one of the options on the table for those in a loveless marriage is to actually communicate with their spouse and figure out what's wrong and and address the issues and try to refire, you know, reignite, you know, the passion and the intimacy. It's it's central to our humanity. Yeah, we want someone to go on the journey with. 
When is the church going to get that? We're close. I, I think. think it's evolving. I think mm-hmm. it's. Yeah, I I do think it's evolving, and it's because Christians, for the most part, don't know their Bible, and they are not taught to what it says. Uh, You spend time in a seeker-driven church, and you're not going to get the truth at all. Um, You're going to get life tips on how to make your life better. And they're already, seeker-driven churches already have one finger. They've licked their finger, and they stuck it up into the wind of the culture to see which way the, the, the culture is going. And that's the direction they're heading. And I think Andy Stanley makes it very clear he's heading in the same direction. But Rob and Kristen Bell, oh, the church is really close to understanding that the world is a better place if people aren't lonely. The people are already there. We think it's inevitable and we're moments. A moment away away from the church accepting it. Absolutely. Yeah. Because as soon as you meet someone... And most of the time when people have resistance to this, and I say you, to them, you, you think we're moments away. I think culture is already there. Okay. And the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. Ah, see, the, the culture is already there. And notice that it, that wasn't even a subtle swipe against God's word. The church is going to become more irrelevant the more it cites letters from 2,000 years ago is their best defense. It just so happens that those letters that he's referring to, you know, like the Pauline letters, uh, that they actually happen to be Theonousos, God-inspired, their scripture. And Rob Bell's appeal to the culture, you know, the culture does not get to dictate what is and isn't truth. Nope. Truth is true yesterday, today, and forever. And so there's Rob Bell, the former megachurch pastor, darling of you know the evangelicalism with his Numa videos for years. <sighs> Just talking about how irrelevant the church is going to be as long as it's quoting letters from 2,000 years ago. When you have in front of you flesh and blood people who are your brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and co-workers and neighbors, and they love each other and they just want to go through life with someone. Well, you sound really progressive to me because I've talked to pastors who are still saying well, that... Oh, I think there are a lot of people who, as they see culture moving, their response is to dig in deeper. Yeah. Is to, like, yeah, hold their ground, yeah. fight against it. Right. <laughs> because when the culture is embracing sin and evil, the job of the church is to call the culture and people to repent of their sins and to be forgiven. Somehow, Rob and Kristen Bell think the job of the church is, well, if the culture shifts, the church should shift along with it. Where in Scripture do you read that? Um, So I think that there are both things happening. There are churches that are moving forward or into that area, and there are churches who are just almost regressing and making it more of a battle. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Do you want to be part of a church that's moving forward? You know, because forward is positive. Or do you want to be part of a church that's well, regressing and going backwards? So forward is capitulating to the culture, giving the culture what it wants, going along with the culture. Hey, the culture is embracing same-sex marriage. We should too. You know, and so when the culture embraces, you know child porn and bc we should embrace that too and if the culture embraces polyamory and you know people don't want to be alone we should embrace that too and anybody anybody who dares dares to dig in and say no wait a second god's word says this is a sin not only is it a sin it's a sin that christ bled and died for 
The message doesn't change. It's the faith once delivered to the saints. We're to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. And Christ is with us always, even to the end of the age. We don't get to monkey with the message or change the message just because the culture has changed. In fact, Christians are called to be faithful to Christ and what is revealed in the Word of God as the Word of God until Jesus returns. In fact, those churches that, well, Christian thinks are moving forward, they're not moving forward. They're moving away from Christ, farther and farther away from Christ. And the people in those churches are not hearing the saving message of Christ crucified for our sins. And that's kind of the sad part in all of this. The churches that go along with the culture and, you know, she says are moving forward, they're not moving forward. What they're ending up doing, rather than loving people who are sinning in this way, they're actually sending them to hell. Because rather than preaching the saving message of Christ, that Christ bled and died for those sins, and calling them to repent and to be forgiven, and then bear fruit in keeping that repentance, what they're instead doing is saying, oh, listen, God's okay with that. It's no big deal at all. Without any word from God that says anything of the sort. In fact, God's word is consistent throughout that, well, same-sex attraction, same-sex intercourse, all of this is sin. It's a sin. It's a sin like adultery. It's a sin like, like lying. It's a sin like cheating. It's a sin like coveting. All of these things Christ bled and died for. The message of Christianity doesn't change regardless of the culture that it's in or the direction that the culture is moving towards. In fact, as the church continues to drift with the culture, the worse the culture will get because they're not being called to repent and to be forgiven. Because you can't expect people in the broader culture to bear the fruit of the Spirit if they're still dead in their trespasses and sins. Something to think about. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to listen to Beth Moore play the Pharisee card as well as take a listen to uh, Rick Warren give us what he would consider like the most important sermon he can ever deliver. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, <sighs> sacked the choir, and put Damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. No 
Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance and an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll, I'll come in again. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <laughs> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do chief weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose. Uh, uh, vision. Okay, and... okay, stop, stop that, stop that. Uh, our chief weapons are purpose. Blah, 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick, read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! How should Christians deal with false teaching in their midst? What should we do when our doctrine and our practice do not sync? What role does humor and satire play in calling out false teachings? These are the timely questions for the 2015 Brothers of John the Steadfast Conference, February 20th and 21st at Bethany Lutheran Church in Naperville, Illinois. Hear from pastors Brian Wolfmiller, Clint Poppy, Larry Bean, Hans Feeney, and Todd Wilkin as they address the theme, When Heterodoxy Hits Home. Also, don't miss out on the No Pietists Allowed parties, the Manly Man Breakfast, and Worship to Feed the Soul. To find out more and to register for When Heterodoxy Hits Home, go to Brothers of John the Steadfast at steadfastlutherans.org. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with Rob Bell, Beth Moore, Rick Warren, and other people in the evangelical industrial complex. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to do what we do here at Fighting for the Faith. And you can partner with us. Think of it as a partnership. By supporting us, it makes it possible for us to keep doing what we're doing. So you actually have an active role 
in what Fighting for the Faith is doing. And so the way you support us, the way you partner with us is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see our two friendly yellow buttons, and boy, they are friendly. And uh, yeah, that's right. One of them says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95. That's it. Every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. And of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because truly, and it is true, we cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. Time for a Beth Moore update. Faster than a hummingbird who's had five cups of coffee. Able to stare down anybody in a non-blinking contest. It's time for... (laughs) Bible Twisting with Beth Moore. Today she'll be exegeting a passage from one of the Gospels. uh, Talking about, well, Jesus coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And during today's exegetical... Well, it's not really exegetical. Bible twisting. We will hear Beth Moore play the Pharisee card. Yeah, there we go. That's the uh, Flight of the Bumblebee from the Canadian Brass. You can find them on YouTube, by the way. And uh, so what we're going to be listening to from Beth Moore is uh, an episode of, well, the Life Today television program. They do Wednesdays in the Word is the way they like to say it. And uh, we're going to be listening to Beth Moore as, uh, in her latest installment. In fact, I think it, <laughs> I think it broadcasts today. And she's going to be working through the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. And, uh, you know, right after the Mount of Transfiguration, you know, they come down from the mountain and we're going to find out why is it that the disciples, while Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, why were they not able to cast out the demon from the boy who was demon possessed, you know, with a deaf mute spirit? Well, it's not, she's not going to tell us what the text actually says. Beth Moore has her own idea about what was at play here, and she even claims that God showed this to her. So without any further ado, here's Beth Moore as she gets ready to play the Pharisee card. Here we go. met the neatest young man on my flight here. Uh, we were in the gate together in Houston uh, and visited for a little while. Um, on the f- uh, And then we were in separate seats, of course, for the flight because I had lots and lots of studying to do. But I was so fascinated by him. A young speaker. I, I don't even know how old to tell you. I'd be surprised uh, if he was uh, anywhere near 30. But he was going to speak to middle school and high school students in this particular area. And he said something wonderful to me. He said, he said now, now um, Beth, do you always 
always know? Do you always have your message ready when you go? And I said, you know, yes, yes, because I do, I believe in preparation. Now, if he wants to go off road, I want to go with him, but I don't, I, yes, I, I do. He said, well, I, I do sometimes. He said, a lot of times they'll ask me what I'm going to speak on. And I say, let me, let me get a feel for that group. He said, here's what I like to do. I just loved it. And I, I, I have to find the balance of how that works in my own life. But here's what he said. I just get full of the word. I just make sure I'm full of the word. And then when I go, I just open my mouth and see what comes out. Just one. I, you know, there was a part of me that goes, why do I even have any notes? I want that to be me. I've been reading the scriptures. I just want to stand up there and open my mouth. But I'm afraid if I do, God will go, you know what? Where's your notes? Now, they're all laughing right there. So, But notice what she said, that she's afraid that if she were to decide to, you know, to strike out into a exegetical teaching without any notes, that God would directly communicate to her and ask the question, where are your notes? You know, got a, it got a laugh line, you know, that you got to laugh out of people, but yeah, really, uh, you know, <laughs> when I'm preaching and I'm teaching through God's word, yes, I, I spent a lot of time preparing and I have notes. But um, I have no expectation that if I were to, you know, ascend to the pulpit and begin preaching without notes that God would be going, hey, Chris. And I could hear him saying, hey, Chris, uh, where's the notes? Yeah, I have yet to hear God audibly speak to me. He speaks to me daily through his word. Um, and God's word is sufficient. This is what Second uh, Timothy teaches us. But, um, hmm. Yeah, so there's the laugh line. <laughs> God would say to me, where's your notes? Yikes. Beth, there's some people I don't trust without notes, and you are her. <laughs> you are her. You get to keep your notes. That's what you get to do. I just loved it. His tongue was loosed. Now, i got to show you another place. Go with me to Mark chapter 9. See this with me. Now, for some of you, this will be a familiar set of passages, but I ask you, let do not let that cheat you of some of the enormity of what's going on here. Mark 9, I want to read 14 through 29, so a pretty long uh, set of, of verses. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Let me give you a little bit of background. Jesus has taken the three, um, Peter, James, and John, up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, they, they are seeing Christ transfigured while the rest of the disciples are down below there in the valley ministering. So I want you to get this picture of what's happening there. So when they start coming down, they see the great crowd and, and they see the other disciples and the scribes are arguing with them. And immediately it says in verse 15, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. That's when they see Jesus. And he asked them, and he's talking about his um, disciples here, what are you arguing with them about? What are you arguing about with them, he says in verse 16. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Okay, this is really, really interesting, because if you'll check back, I won't take the time with you right now, but if you'll just write down um, the references of Mark 6, 7, and 13, Mark 6, 7, and 13, they were given the power and the authority to do exactly this. 
Now, they'll ask him later, what was that about? He'll talk to them about prayer and fasting, but that, those things were also an act of faith, right? Now, let's, let's do a little bit of work in this text ourselves before we get to uh, Beth Moore playing the Pharisee card here. And let's pay real close attention to what the text says, okay? So this is right after the Mount of Transfiguration. That's in the preceding portion, uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And uh, now they're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John were up there. And here's what it says, starting at verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with him. Now, I, I want to make a point is that scribes and Pharisees often are in cahoots with each other, but the text doesn't say Pharisees. It says scribes. Now, this is you know an important exegetical point. So there's the scribes arguing with the disciples, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And some from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Now, the, the cross-reference that uh, Beth gives here regarding Mark chapter 6 and the fact that Jesus had given authority to the disciples over demons, this is true. The disciples had been given authority over the demons. And they were unable to cast this one out. So now the question comes up, why? Why were they not able to cast out the demon since they had been given that authority by Jesus? So, well, the text has got to tell us. If the text doesn't tell us, then we don't know why. So here's what Jesus says. Verse 19, so he, Jesus, answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And, the, and they brought the boy to Jesus. And when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Now, this is a fascinating passage. And one of the reasons why it's fascinating is, is that, well, there's a demon manifesting itself. Here's a child, not an adult, but a child and he is convulsing on the ground, rolling about, foaming at the mouth. It would be quite a commotion. So much of a commotion that everybody's first inclination would be, this boy needs medical attention. Quick, somebody help him. And watch what Jesus does. He doesn't attend to the boy first. Nope. Here's what he does. So while this kid is foaming at the mouth, rolling around on the, on the ground, convulsing, Jesus asks his father, how long has this been happening to him? And you just think for a second, okay, Jesus, there's a medical emergency here. And notice that doesn't, the father is not saying this. I, I'm kind of pointing this out. And there's like a, this kid is rolling around on the ground, and the first thing he does is talk to the father and ask him a question. Well, Jesus is after something because Jesus cares about people's faith because faith, it, we are saved by grace through faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Jesus here has diagnosed something in the Father by going this route rather than attending to the boy first. So Jesus asked the question, how long has this been happening to him? 
And he said, From childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now notice something here. Faith and unbelief are warring inside of this man. He has enough faith to bring his child to Jesus' disciples in order to have the demon cast out, and yet he's also wrestling with internal doubt. That's what's going on. This is why Jesus goes this route. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Believes whom? Believes Christ. Believes him for what? Believes him for everything. This is kind of a first commandment issue, if you would. What you know, you know, the first commandment, you will have no other gods before me. What does this mean? That we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. That we fear, love, and trust in God, and we come to him in times of need and trust him for our daily sustenance and other things like that. So here, this this is a first commandment issue, if you would. He, On the one hand, he has enough faith to bring his child to Jesus, but he's still wrestling with unbelief. How many of us do something similar, right? If you can do... If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And through Jesus' gentle rebuke, yeah, he repents of his unbelief and faith is the thing that gets the upper hand, right? I believe, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. This is a great prayer. This is a great prayer, one that even I can pray and you can pray and we ought to pray, right? Because how many of us struggle between faith and doubt, right? We have these same struggles. So, Lord, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Faith gets the upper hand. And when Jesus saw the crowd coming together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, by the way, the reason why the crowd's gathering is because, well, like I said, there's a medical emergency going on. So Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So there's the answer. There's the question. Why could we not cast this out, Jesus? You've given us authority. You know, in Mark chapter 6, you gave us authority, Jesus. We've cast out demons before. Why did we fail? This is a legitimate question. Notice that Jesus gives us the definitive answer. No need for speculation. Nope, Jesus gives us the answer. The answer is simple. Something they didn't know. He said this kind can only be driven out by prayer. And by the way, there is an alternate reading. Some manuscripts say by prayer and fasting. That's right. Some manuscripts say prayer and fasting. So what does this all mean? Well, first of all, this is th- this is a passage designed for disciples like you and me, well, to wrestle with our own doubts regarding Jesus and to push us towards faith in Christ. This is another passage, just like all the other passage. These are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. This is what's going on here. And yet, it, it you know, not all of the um, 
issues are handled in ways that we would necessarily understand or were handled in a way that make exact sense. So this is a teaching moment for the disciples. They feel like they've failed. They want to know why. What do we do wrong, Jesus? And Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He just says, ah, this kind only comes out by prayer and maybe fasting too. So that's what's going on in this text. That's the reason why the disciples were not able to cast it out. No need to speculate. The text itself tells us why. So let's find out where Beth Moore goes with this next. He's ticked. And he says to them, look, look at it when he says they could not cast him out. And he says in verse 19, he answered, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. How long am I to be with you? Because he knows he's almost out. And it's like, you're going to be on. I've given you authority to do certain things. I've given you power to do certain things. I said greater works than these because I'm going to my father. Yeah, this is not this the way she's upbraiding the disciples here. That's not exactly what's going on here because the disciples were still puzzled as to why they couldn't cast it out. You better get this together here because you're going to need to have your faith and do what you've been called to do. And in verse 20, it says, it says bring him here to me. In verse 20, they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And in verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, this is some of the most profound words in the gospels. I believe, help my unbelief. I mean, I believe, but I don't believe. Please help me where I don't believe. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. Those are going to be important words to us. Never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, took him by the hand, lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, believing prayer. Why? Why, you faithful generation, did you not do what I called you to do? Now, I want you to see something because... Yeah, again, um, notice that Jesus didn't rebuke the disciples when they asked the question. (sighs) Yep. Boy, yeah, we've got a problem here. Already this is starting to go wobbly. Next part's important, though. Let's keep listening. It's so important. God spoke a word to me as many as 10 years ago when I was working on a series called Believing God that completely uh, changed my life and changed my perspective. Okay, now notice this is the critical move. She's claiming that she got a word directly from God. In other words, this interpretation of this passage isn't found in a biblical text. This interpretation is actually found only in the direct revelation received by Beth Moore. Yeah, and if you don't disagree with this interpretation, well, she's claiming that this interpretation has no higher authority than God himself. He's the one who revealed this to her, supposedly. That's what's going on. We continue. I 
began to look here at these passages, how these people who had been anointed, I mean, God chosen by Jesus to do exactly that, could not do what they had been empowered by Jesus and commissioned by Jesus to do. Why? Why? I believe it was because they were arguing with the Pharisees and the scribes. Um, Really? The text says why. The disciples asked Jesus why straight up. The answer Jesus gave in the moment when he was there was, oh, this kind of demon only comes out through prayer and maybe fasting too, by the way. Some manuscripts say that. But you're saying the reason why they couldn't cast the demon out and God gave you this word was because the disciples were arguing with the Pharisees and the scribes. Well, that's funny. The text doesn't mention the Pharisees. The, ten- the text only mentions the scribes. How could this possibly be an inspired interpretation? And that's what she's claiming for herself here, because God showed her this through a word. Gotten a big argument there, and the more they argued, the less faith they had. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Because And what God told me, and I've thought about this over and over. There it is. God told me. And where in the text does it say the more they argued, the less faith they had? It doesn't, didn't say that at all. Never argue with the Pharisee. Never argue with the Pharisee. So the point of this text is to teach you don't argue with the Pharisee, despite the fact there were no Pharisees in this text arguing with the disciples. Wow. They go to church with them, love them, serve with them. Do, do all manner of living with them. But when you get in an argument with a Pharisee about what Jesus is capable of doing, what will happen is they'll talk you right out of your faith. That which you have been. Yeah, that didn't happen in this text. And notice what's Pharisee. What does Pharisee mean in this sense? Number one, the scribes were there, not the Pharisees. Um, number two, um, how is she defining Pharisee? Oh, you go to church with them. Oh, these would be the people who, well, you know are discerning Christians who say things like, God is not giving direct revelation to Beth Moore, and she's teaching false doctrine, and here's what God's Word really says. That makes you into a a Pharisee. By the way, that's an ad hominem argument. And so what I'm going to do, this episode of Fighting for the Faith at FightingForTheFaith.com, we'll put a link to two two resources at Fighting for the Faith, the article on playing the Pharisee card, as well as an article regarding ad hominem attacks. This is an ad hominem attack. And she claims, oh, God showed her this. This is from a direct word from the Lord. This proves actually that Beth Moore is not hearing from God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit doesn't make errors like this, where he would say it's because they were arguing with the Pharisees. No, the, the, the disciples weren't arguing with the Pharisees. They were arguing with the scribes. And notice in, in the New Testament, scribes and Pharisees often work together, but they're two distinct groups. Commissioned and anointed to do, you suddenly will not be able to do. Why? Because a Pharisee has talked you out of it. You had faith going into it, but now you've had somebody say, well, I don't even really believe God does that anymore. Well, really? He's been doing it through me. But all of a sudden, like, now I can't do it because you have suggested to me that it's not anything God is doing anymore. Is anybody getting in this with me? Yeah, in other words, people who are challenging Beth Moore and saying she's not hearing from God, that's her defense. Oh, I am hearing from God. I know it because it's been happening through me. She ain't hearing from God. In fact, this direct revelation that she claims came from God proves she isn't hearing from God because God doesn't contradict his written word. 
Because this is so dangerous. This is so dangerous. Listen, the more we argue, when we get into a big debate, let, let's do have good conversations. Let's have good, have, let's have good dialogue. But don't argue with them. Because it may be that you walk away from them with the same amount of faith they have in what Jesus is capable of doing. This is scary. This is scary. Do not look at your neighbor and say, do not argue with a Pharisee. Yeah, I agree with you, Beth. This is really scary what you're doing here. Playing the Pharisee card by claiming direct revelation from God and an inspired interpretation of the text that is not accurate to what the text said. Why were the disciples not able to cast out the demons? Because it wasn't because they were fighting with Pharisees because there were no Pharisees present in the text. There were scribes, and it's not because they were arguing with the scribes. If, that, if the reason why the disciples couldn't cast the demons out was because they were arguing with the scribes, then when they asked Jesus, why could we not cast them out, you know what Jesus would have said? He would have said, the reason why you couldn't cast them out is because you were arguing with the scribes. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, this kind only comes out through prayer. Hmm. You kind of get the point. Again, proving definitively Beth Moore is not hearing from God. Wow. Scary, all right. Yeah, moving along. Time for a Rick Warren update. I don't know how I know, but I'm going to find my purpose. I don't know where I'm going to look, but I'm going to find my purpose. Got to find out. Don't want to wait. Got to make sure that my life my purpose before it's too late that's right i gotta find our purpose that's our purpose-driven update music now we're going to be listening to a sermon by a portion of the sermon by rick warren entitled why god made you and uh in in this sermon you're going to hear rick basically say and it's it's a few minutes into it that if, if he could only preach one sermon, something to that effect, the most important sermon he could possibly preach would be this message. And we're going to ask the question, is it the saving message of Christ and him crucified for our sins? Or is it about discovering your purpose? If you think it's the first one, I hate to say this, you're probably going to be supremely disappointed. But here's Rick Warren to introduce his sermon entitled, Why God Made You. Here we go. If you'll take out your message notes... Mark Twain, wow, two, this must be a long sermon. Wow, Wow, that's fancy. Um, Mark Twain once said, the two most important days in your life are number one, the day you're born, and number two, the day you figure out why. Uh Uh-huh. Mark Twain is nowhere found in the Bible. Why you were born. God has never created anything without a purpose. Every plant has a purpose. Every star has a purpose. Every animal has a purpose. Notice this isn't a biblical argument. It's a um, logical argument, if you would. It does not create things without a reason, without a purpose. And if your heart is beating and you're breathing, there's a purpose for your life. Well, I'm sure there is, and I'm not doubting that. Can you show me from God's Word in context, though? You need to actually exegete the biblical text. That's what a pastor is supposed to do. Because God never makes anything without a purpose. And the very fact that you're alive makes your life meaningful. That God had a reason for creating you. And that's what we're going to look at this weekend. Why God made you. 
Now, have you ever stopped to think that you know humans would not be asking this question? Why would I, was I made? What what's my purpose? If it weren't for the fact that humanity fell into sin, this you know purposelessness, if you would, is one of the effects of the fall in a real sense. So Rick Warren is addressing something that is well caused as a result of our sinful rebellion against God. Let's see what he says, though. If you want to know the purpose of your life, you got to start with God. You can't find it on TV. You can't find it in the movies. You can't find it, uh, you know, reading a book. You can't find it. A lot of people say, well, the way you need to find your purpose is look within. Like, trust the force, Luke. Look within. That doesn't work. I tried that a lot of times. Look within. All I saw was a bunch of confusion. You can't tell you what your purpose is because you didn't make you. Does that make sense? Only your creator can tell you what your purpose is. You can't tell yourself because you weren't alive when whoever thought you up thought you up. If I were to hold up uh, uh, a... um, Still notice this is a logical argument, not... uh, In fact, you can even say philosophical argument, not a biblical one so far. Just in any kind of invention that you had never seen. And I held up. And I said, tell me what this is. What's the purpose of this invention? You wouldn't have the slightest idea. And the only way you would know the purpose of an invention you'd never seen is either A, talk to the inventor, the creator who made it, and they can tell you what it does, or B, read the owner's manual. The same as... He just held up his Bible. Is the Bible an owner's manual? I think that's a poor way to look at um, the Bible. A very poor way indeed. Why? Because the Bible's about Jesus. This is what Jesus said. He said to the Pharisees, you, you diligently search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, yet they, they are the very scriptures that testify about me, and you refuse to come to me to have life. The scriptures testify about Jesus. Tell us what he's done for us. To call it uh, an owner's manual. I mean, who likes to read owner's manuals? I know guys don't generally like to do that. They like to figure things out on their own without having to look at the owner's manual. And once you figure out how something works, you don't need to go back to the owner's manual again, do you? Yeah, it's a very bad way to think of the Bible as an owner's manual. Your life. The only way you're ever going to know your purpose for your life, why you're here on this planet, what on earth you're here for, is A, talk to your creator, God, who made you, and B, read the owner's manual. Now, the Bible says this. Look there on your outline. Ephesians chapter 1 from the Bible says, It is in Christ... He's reading from the message paraphrase out of context, Ephesians 1, 11, and 12 from the message. Find out who we are and what we're living for. And so he said, I really got to find myself. You're going to find yourself in Christ. It is in Christ we find out who we are, what we're living for, part of the overall purpose that he, God, is working out in everything and everyone. The next verse, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says this. Everything, absolutely everything, got started in Christ and finds its purpose in him. Another passage out of context, message paraphrase. You were made by God. You were made for God. And Yeah, why aren't you quoting like a good English translation like the ESV? Hmm? You understand that your life is never going to make sense. You're going to go through life wondering, what on earth am I here for? You got to start with God. Now, the Bible says that you were made to last forever. 
One day, your heart is going to stop. That's going to be the end of your body, but it's not going to be the end of you. That's going to be the end of your time on earth, but it's not going to be the end of you. God has long-range plans for your life, and I'm not exaggerating, because he wants you to live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So you're going to actually spend more time on the other side of death than you do on this time side. Yeah, this is true, and fortunately, some people are going to spend eternity in hell. On this side, you get 80 years, at the most, maybe 100. That's it. That's not really a whole lot of time. After you die, you move into eternity, and you're going to spend trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions on to infinity and beyond uh, for the rest of your life. Yeah, which would mean that don't you think you might want to tell them about what Christ did for them and call them to repent and to be forgiven? So this is like a little tiny millimeter of your life, the few measly years you're here on earth. Most of your life is going to be on the other side. Now, have you ever thought about this? If God wants to take me to heaven, why doesn't he just take me there instantly? Why didn't he just make me and start with me in heaven? Okay, uh, so you're throwing a question out there. Are you going to go to a biblical text in order to answer it? Because there's no way to answer this question without a biblical text that actually reveals the answer. Unless you just want to engage in speculation and put speculation out as Christian doctrine that people are supposed to believe, which pastors are not supposed to be doing. Why does God put you on this planet for 80 years? Really? Why does he do that? Well, the Bible says you're not ready for heaven. There are some things you need to learn. Uh huh. Which passage says I'm not ready for heaven and there's things I need to learn? I'm not familiar with that text. God says this life, follow me, this life is preparation for the next. And which text says that where God says this life is preparation for the next? I'd like to see the passage, please. You want to know why you're on this planet. It is to get ready for the next life. This life is preparation for the next. This is the preschool. This is the warm-up act. This is the get-ready stage. This is the kindergarten. This is the dress rehearsal before the real show begins. And which biblical texts say this? This is the first lap around track before the real race begins. This is the warm-up act. Getting ready for eternity because that's the real show that's going to go on forever and ever and ever. Now, in heaven, you're going to do a number of things, and the Bible tells us what's going to happen in heaven. And what God wants you to do here on earth is practice what you're going to do in heaven forever. So, when uh, so we, the, the, this, the whole life is all about practicing, right? And which text says that again? To heaven, you know what to do. Now, I'm going to explain to you. Now, what about those Christian youths who die, you know, a few years into their lives? They didn't get to practice very much. I guess they're not going to know what to do when they get to heaven, huh? This evening, exactly what God wants you to practice while you're here on earth. This may be the most important message you've ever heard in your life. There it is. So this might be the most important message you've ever heard in your whole life. Not the message of Christ and him crucified for our sins. Because I can't think of anything more fundamental than why am I here on earth? And what you, you, Rick, can't think of anything more fundamental for a pastor to be preaching than why am I here on earth? Uh-huh. And yet you were doing this from the message paraphrase, not a good translation. Really? I'm supposed to do with my life. 
If I only had one sermon to preach, it would be this message. Uh huh. So there it is. Rick Warren only had one message to preach. It wouldn't be Christ and Him crucified for our sins. Nope. If Rick Warren only had one message to preach, the message he would preach is Bible verses out of context from the message paraphrase and a whole lot of philosophical speculation helping people find their purpose. Wow. I think that says a lot about Rick Warren. What do you think? All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break, when we come back, we're going to head down to Potential Church. It's only a church in Potential. And listen to a sermon on the yang of the ear of the sheep. Yeah, Cheney's New Year. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Down, click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com, write down the promo code, click on the ad banner and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms and rental cars today. Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. All right, let's do this right. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon <laughs> comes to us from Martext, Troy Grambling. 
You can look it up if you're not sure what it means. Uh, from Potential Church out there in Florida. They're a multi-site. And um, the uh, sermon series is entitled Yang, the Year of the Sheep. And the artwork and graphics and the video leading into the sermon all key in on the Chinese New Year. No joke. So let me ask the question. Why do you think Jesus died on the cross? Uh, if you're saying, well, for my sins, uh, to propitiate the wrath of God, you know, that, that, things like that. Well, apparently something as basic as that question and the answer to it, it's, uh, it's a little beyond the reach of Troy Gramling. Because what you're going to hear him say as to why Jesus died, it's not that. Nope. And uh, there's no point in even opening up your Bible at the moment because he's going to be really mangling, and I mean mangling, the uh, 23rd Psalm for the next 50 minutes or so. So buckle up. Hang on. Here we go. All right. So y'all ready for Super Sunday? Thank you for being here on this. uh, It's kind of like a holiday, I guess, for some people. How many of you don't care at all about Super Bowl? (laughs) Only here, right? Those of you who do care, how many of you are especially fond of the Seattle Seahawks? And then this is an integrity question, I guess. How many of you are for, you know, the other team? Uh, Steph and I were, uh, last week, were, or yeah, several days, we're up in the Northeast. So it's going to be an interesting Super Bowl, I think. A whole lot of fun. You know, we're in a series. We're talking about the new year uh, and a new you. And the year of the sheep, which happens to be the Chinese New Year. Last year was the horse. The year before that was the snake. It actually doesn't... And since when are Christian pastors supposed to be preaching on the Chinese New Year? And I think February the 9th, somewhere in there. And that's why, because if you think about it, you think, man, January's over. This is February the 1st. You're still talking about the new year. But really, it's a perfect time. Because you think about it, as you get to the end of January, you're kind of out of the new year mode. You know, when the new year starts, there's a whole lot of hope and excitement. 2015, it's going to be better. And, uh, you know, my relationships are going to be better. I'm going to get in shape. And I'm going to take care of my finances. And then... You know, a month later, real life starts to hit and you're busy and Christmas is over. So people aren't as nice and they're not as forgiving. And, and, and so I think it's a great time just to remind ourselves that this could be a really incredible year. That in 365 days, we will be standing here, sitting here. We'll be here, you know, if, if um, uh, God's grace. And will we be any different is really the question. Will it just be 2016? And will your finances look different? Will your relationships look different? Will your future look different? And if it doesn't, am I sinning? If things get worse, does that mean God's punishing me and that I'm not exercising faith and I'm out of God's favor? And the only thing that can determine that is what we do between now and then. So, so as I, I spent some time, you know, kind of thinking about how do we do that? How do we prepare? What does God want to say to us? I thought, well, we'll look at the sheep passage of Scripture. That's what we've been doing for the last couple of weeks. Pastor Chris spoke last week, did an incredible job. He's actually at our Bahamas campus this week. But if you have a Bible, 
or an iPad. Or an yeah, I need to tell the elders at my church, we need a Bahamas campus phone or whatever it is, turn with me to Psalm 23, okay? Now, the great thing about if you have some kind of Android or iOS is that you can download our app and you can get the teaching outline for this weekend as well as the scripture. So if you turn with me to Psalm 23 and let's stand, okay? Psalm 23. No, no, sit back down. Sit back down. Sit back down. Now, if you're a guest, I understand. But for those, it's only been like, what, uh, two weeks and you've already forgot. We're starting this year off different because we're expecting that in the next few moments, God's at, that this stuff is actually real and God's going to do some incredible things. He's either going to encourage us and we may need that, or he's going to inspire us or he's going to challenge us. And so there's that anticipation is, you know what? I'm going to have passion, energy, and excitement because the reality is what we sow is what we read. So, Psalm 23. Let's stand, all right? <laughs> that was better. It wasn't as short-lived, you know what I'm saying? But let's keep it rolling. Here we go. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my... New living translation, by the way. He guides me along the right paths. He brings honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valleys, I'm not going to be afraid for you're close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. And you honor me by anointing my head with oil. So much so that my cup overflows with blessing. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will live in the house of the Lord forever. You may be seated, all right? Now, I, I want us to, to start at the very beginning. And, and that's verse 1. And so let's look at Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I what? Need. So if God is our shepherd, he's making a promise to us here. David's kind of looking, you know, down at the sheep and he's reminded of all the things that God had done for him. And he says, you know what? When God's my shepherd, I have everything I need. The old King James says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, which carries the same idea. I'm not, you know, there's not lack in my life. But if you're honest with me, if you circle this word need, it's not very sexy, is it? Right? I mean, I mean when, you, when you read that, when I say the Lord is my shepherd, I'm like, Yeah. I've got everything that I need. And you may... Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. I shall not want. And everything I need is... Uh, that's a pretty legit way of talking about it. But watch how he's going to interpret this text and what it supposedly is saying. And all of the promises that it's making that are not there. This is a prime example of eisegesis that you're going to hear from Troy Gramling here in a minute. More spiritual than me, but when I when I think about need, I, I lose a little steam. Like, what does that mean? I got everything I need. You know, not what you want, what you need. That's what our parents used to say. But and, and and the question I'm asking is: Does this mean rice cakes or brownies? Now, I've never had rice rice cakes or brownies. Hmm. So apparently. This, I have all that I need, is somehow referencing rice cakes or brownies. 
yeah, the the the, <laughs> the exegetical skills um, that uh, Troy Gramling is exhibiting here are well far less than um, <laughs> superior, way less than superior. And the reason I haven't is because they're not very good from what I understand. But they will provide, you know, food, uh, a food source for you. So when God says, I'm going to give you everything you need, is God talking about rice cakes or is he talking about brownies? And I have had brownies. Mmm, I like brownies. I mean, do you ever ask that question when you look at that? Because it, sometimes I think we lose a little passion. I got everything that I, that I need. Now, that's exciting if there are some things that you need that you don't have. But does that mean a Ford Focus or does that mean a Mustang? Really, is, what are you doing with this text? One's coming out. I mean, what, 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 is that, what does that mean? What is, what is God trying to say to us there in Psalm 23? Let me ask you another question. What was your favorite toy growing up? Think about that for a moment. Your favorite toy growing up. And then I want you to turn to the person sitting beside you. Tell them, what was your favorite toy growing up? All right. Did anybody actually have a Cabbage Patch doll growing up? How about a Barbie? How about, what was it, Red Ryder BB gun or whatever in that movie? How about like maybe the first Nintendo? Or if you want to go way, way old school, like the first Atari? If you want to even go before that, how about Pong? Anybody have Pong? Or maybe... An Xbox, you know, when you were growing up, or maybe a new phone, or I, it, it, a lot of different things. I, anybody remember Tinker Toys? Now, I know those of you who are young don't. But mine was, one of the things that I really enjoyed was Lincoln Logs. Do you remember Lincoln Logs? Now, here's the reason for me they hold a special place in my memory. is because I remember as a child... Um, let me fix this. I remember as a child putting these together with my mom and my dad and my brothers. And so we kind of did it as a family. So I think I'm a little nostalgic uh, about them. Now, the original leaking logs weren't like these. These are crap. Okay. I mean, it's pressed wood and plastic roofs and, and all of that, where the original ones were real wood and even wood roofs and all that kind of stuff. Now, the interesting thing about Lincoln Logs is when you look at all these buildings and different things that you can build, they're all right here in the instructions. And if you open up, and it's what I liked about it, it shows you exactly how to build all of those. And not only does it show you how to build, and it's important that you follow the... I guess if I turned it right side up, it would be better. (laughs) It's important that you follow all these instructions because... They only provide enough in here to build these. Let me say it another way. Everything you need to do this is found in here. There's nothing you need to build any of these that's not found in here. And when you read Psalm 23, I believe that that's exactly what God is saying. 
is that there is a dream in your heart. There- what? So, so Psalm 23 is about a dream that supposedly is residing in your heart. You have got to be kidding me. Destiny for which you were created. God had a purpose in mind when he knit you together, according to Psalm 139. You didn't fall out of a tree. You didn't wash up on the shore somewhere. You were created by God with a dream. And you can see it. Now, maybe some of us have given up on it and we don't think about it anymore. But there was a time when you saw this. And this might be an incredible marriage or this might be a new business or this might be a college education or this might be a wonderful family. I don't know what this was, but you had a picture of it in your mind. And you thought, man, I'd love to have that. I'd love to be able to do that. And what David is saying, he's saying that when God is my shepherd, I have everything I need to accomplish my destiny, to live out. Man. Really? So Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, means that God has given me everything that I need in order to fulfill my destiny. Excuse me while I go beat my head against a brick wall. Wow, that is ridiculous. Can you point me to a single good scholarly commentary on the Psalms that says that we have everything we need for our purpose or our destiny? (laughs) Unbelievable. Dream. That's pretty good news, isn't it? No, it's not means is, is that you'll always have all the resources you need to accomplish your dream. You'll always have every skill that you need. There won't be one talent or one skill that you need that you don't have to accomplish your dream. There'll not be one relationship that you don't have to accomplish your dream. Yeah, that's not what this text is promising at all. And believe me when I tell you, it doesn't get any better from here. Because the passage says, the Lord is my shepherd. And as my shepherd, he's given me everything I need to accomplish my dream or my... No, he's given you everything you need. It's not about having a dream or a purpose or a destiny. Unless, of course, your destiny that you're talking about is eternal life. And in that case, he has given you everything you need. He's given you Christ who's bled and died for your sins, every one of them. Isn't that good news? I mean, that, that, that's inspiring to me to be reminded that this is not just some kind of funeral passage of Scripture. It's not just something to be reminded of when people die, but in reality, it's something to be reminded of as we live. The Lord is my shepherd. So I got everything. Relationships, finances, skills, talents. Whatever it is that I need, I have it in order to accomplish the dream that God's put inside of my heart. Now, if that's true, then why do so few people actually succeed? Why do so few people actually live their dreams, accomplish their destiny? I think it's because there are obstacles, because there are obstacles, aren't they? There are things right now that all of us are dealing with. Some of Yeah, see, you would accomplish your dreams because you have everything you need to accomplish your destiny. It's just, it's just that there's obstacles. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's that this text isn't teaching what you say it's teaching. Even You don't even like teachings like this because you're like, ah, oh, been there, done that, not even sure it works. 
And it's because of these obstacles. Let me show them to you. Scarcity. In other words, you don't have enough money. Yeah, so scarcity is the obstacle getting in the way of you, you know, accomplishing your dream, yet you have everything you need. So this text is promising that you won't have scarcity to accomplish your dream, that is. Anybody here had a time in your life where you didn't have enough money to do something that you wanted to do? Anybody here could use a few more resources to... All right, you got about 20, 30 people. The rest of you are quite wealthy, I assume. <clears throat> so at this time, we'd like to receive an offering. We have the ushers to come. Scarcity, again, I don't know for you, but for me at times, it's like, man, if we just had some more resources, we could do this or we could start that or we could see this happen. It can be an obstacle. Like, man, I don't, I don't know how to do this. I don't know, how do I go to school if I don't have the money? How do I start a business if I don't have the money? How do we build a second location if we don't have the money? How do we get a home if we don't have the money? Scarcity can sometimes be an obstacle. Inconsistency. You know, hot and cold. Talk more about that in a moment. Just so <laughs> let's think about this. Uh, you know, Psalm 23, 1 is promising consistency in your life towards achieving your dream. Notice the text doesn't say anything about scarcity, inconsistency, despair, fear, doubt, or anything of the sort. He's just inserting into this text anything he wants. It's like it's uh, it's almost as if he's turned Psalm 23 into a magic hat. And he's just pouring things into the hat and seeing what comes out. And it's all magic. It's, this isn't exegesis. This is magic Jesus. Jesus, yeah. <laughs> we continue. Air or discouragement. You just kind of get down. That's where some of us are even today. You're just like, man, I, I just don't, I don't, I don't buy it. I've been hurt too many times. I've been through too much, which actually often a lot of times leads to doubt. I mean, is any of this stuff real? Does God even exist? Is it just something we do on the weekend? And then fear. And fear does one of two things. We either freeze as a result of fear or we turn and we run away in the opposite direction of the dream, whatever the dream might be. And then failure. If you've experienced some kind of failure in your life, it's, it's very easy to stay down and, and not get back up. So God promises us that we have everything we need to live the dream. And yet, yet, no, actually, that's not a promise of Scripture. You've just invented it and stuck it into a text where it does not exist. Facing these obstacles. And here's what I love about this, the Bible is that the rest of Psalm 23 actually deals with these obstacles. God is not unaware of what you and I face. And so as David sat there that day and he looked down at the sheep and he just kind of reminisced about how God was shepherding him and how he shepherded the sheep. And he says, you know, when I follow the shepherd, I got everything that I need. And then he gives us this solution to scarcity when it comes to scarcity. And look at what he says in Psalm 23 too, the very first part of it. He, who's he? Yeah, it's the shepherd. It's God. He lets me what? Where? And green meadows. He lets me rest in green meadows. That's the solution for scarcity in achieving my destiny. Please tell me more. 
lets, he, he lets me rest in green meadows. Now, here's the way I wrote it down in my notes, is that I rest in God's abundance, not my scarcity. I rest in God's abundance, not my scarcity. See, what is a green meadow to a sheep? It's a money field. What? <laughs> oh, man. See, because he says he lets me rest in green meadows, green meadows, well, money's green. And so he, this is talking about the money that you need to achieve your destiny. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. One thing that sheep want, food. And what kind of food do they want? They want green food. They want clover. They want grass. And I mean, the, David starts off by saying, when God is my shepherd, he takes me or he allows me to rest in green meadows. Not just any meadows, not in a patch. Doesn't say that, does it? And he leads me to a patch of grass. And that's not what it says. It says he takes me to meadows. So when you and I are thinking about the dream and we're thinking about what God's put in our heart and, and what we've dreamed about and what we've read about and what we so want to see happen in our lives or in our business or in our relationships. And say, man, if I wish I just had enough. And God's like, what you don't have, I do. If you'll follow me. And, 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 and I like this word right here. Because it reminds us that God always has abundance. It says, he lets me rest. Now, the only reason a sheep could rest in a meadow is because he's no longer concerned about having enough. Because when you and I experience money. Why are these people sitting there and listening to this nonsense? Why are they walking out and saying this guy is a complete crackpot? Just like a sheep would experience, you know, grass and clover. Our tendency is to what? I better get as much as I can today because I don't know if there'll be any tomorrow. I better get what I can today because I, I, it may run out. The, tomorrow the market may go down. Tomorrow I may lose my job. Tomorrow. And so we try to grab as much as we can. Well, sheep are the same way. But the Bible doesn't say that he leads me to the meadow and I eat as much as I can. No, no. It says that he'll... He allows me to rest. So that means in order for a sheep to rest, he has to have great confidence that the shepherd's going to provide the same kind of meal tomorrow that he did today. So when you and I are going after the dream that God's put inside of our heart, the first thing David deals with is the first thing that the majority of us deal with, resources or money. There's so much we... Who knew that Psalm 23 was actually a parable about having being resourced in order to fulfill a destiny dream? And Green Meadows is actually an allegorical metaphor regarding money. Do <sighs> if we just had the resources. And David says, "The Lord is my shepherd. I've got everything I need. He provides all the resources." That I, that I need. And so I'm resting in his abundance, not mine. Because the tendency is to think what? I got to make it happen. I got to find this money somewhere. I got to do this and I got to do that. And, and I got to somehow. And he say, no, 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 no. You, you don't have enough resources. But he has an abundance. And we have to change our thinking with that a little bit. Because 
we live in a world of limited, right? You only got a limited amount of resources. And if you have children, I know when our kids were young and you'd try to give one of them money, you had to give them all money. Unless you kind of secretly said, here you go, Tyler, here's a little extra, you know? You had to give them all money. And I had a limited amount of money. So that meant that, you know, I could only give them so much. And if I gave more to one, it did mean less for the other. And we tend to think the same way. It's kind of like if you win, then that means I must lose. And we find ourselves at competition with one another. But in reality, and here's what I want to reassure you of. God has an abundance. See, what he's saying is, I want you all to win. Everything you and I need, we have, including the resources, if we'll follow the shepherd. And and I could give a lot of different scriptures, but maybe just one to kind of get you started. In Psalm 50, God is speaking to the people of Israel, and he's reminding them of just how much he has. Look what he says. He says, I won't accept your uh, bulls from your house or goats from your corrals. Why? Because the forest animals already belong to me, as do the cattle on a thousand hills. And remember, this is currency in this day. What's God saying? He's saying, you know what? I don't need what you have. I got plenty. I got more than enough. I own it all. I know every mountain bird, even the insects in the fields are mine. Even if I were hungry, God says, I wouldn't tell you why. Because the whole world and everything in it already belongs to me. Offer God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And then he tells us, Something really important. He says, fulfill the promises you made to the Most High. Now, what's he saying? I I really think here's what he's saying. Continue to follow me as your shepherd. Look, I I got more than enough. I got an abundance. I'm never going to be in a financial situation, God says. The economy never affects me. Therefore, continue to follow me as your shepherd because when you do, look what the next power to this passage says. Cry out to me when you are in trouble and I will what? I'll deliver you. The Lord is my shepherd. Got everything I need, including the relationships. Let me give you, uh, according to Psalm 23, God's answer to inconsistency. Look what he says. Yeah, please share. I mean, this is utter nonsense at this point. In part of verse two, he leads me beside what? Peaceful streams. I put it like this in my outline, is I live consistently, not inconsistently. I live consistently, not inconsistently. Now, sheep do not like like rapids, you know, fast running water. And the reason they don't is because sheep are wool. And when wool gets heavy, uh, when wool gets wet, it gets heavy. And when sheepy gets heavy, it sinkies. They can't swim very well. Oh, man. Clearly, he's done a lot of really in-depth research on sheep. Sheep are scared and skittish of running water that's quickly, you know, the rapids and all that. Sheep do not like stagnant water either because when they drink it, they get sick. And so what the shepherd says is he says, I'm not leading you to the rapids that might frighten you or the stagnant life that might make you sick. He says, it's a stream, a peaceful stream. There's a consistency to this. He says, I want to lead you to live a consistent life, not a chaotic or inconsistent life. You know how some people just seem to be fighting life. It just always seems to be difficult for them. There's not a consistency in their life. 
Think about it when it comes to the spiritual life. There are some of us here today that will not know if we're going to be here next Sunday until next Sunday morning. You, You don't know right now whether you'll be here next Sunday. You won't know Friday night. On Sunday morning, you will wake up and you will then decide whether or not you're going to be here. And some weekends you are and you're on fire for God and you're singing. And there are other weekends where, you know, you're just busy or this or or that. You're very inconsistent spiritually. And so there's not a there's not a consistency about your life. Hot and then cold. God says, no, no, if you'll follow me, I'll give you a consistency. So you've got to. Yeah, no, again, Psalm 23 is not God promising us consistency. You are literally just making this stuff up. And sticking it into the text. It's not there. See, what God wants to do is God wants us to be able to make a decision that we then manage. Not have to fight the battle. Same thing as financial. You know what a budget is? A budget is making a decision ahead of time. So that when you get to the store, you're not like, should we get it? I don't know. Can we afford it? I'm not sure. Well, do you, you, you got any cash? I got it. No, no. A budget basically says ahead of the time, what? Here's a consistency to our life. Here's what we can spend. Here's what we can't spend. Same thing as relationships. Some people live very inconsistent relationally. You see them one, you know, time and they're like, mm, I love you. Oh, me, mm, sweetie. Ooh, bye. You know, think about me. And then next time you see them, you're like, well, where's your husband or where's your wife? Hey, we're separated. Uh-huh. Then you see him another two days later and it's, mm, so we made up very inconsistent. And as a result, it creates what worry and stress in the kids, the extended family. They don't know how many plates to set at the table. It, it, God says, no, 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 no. You can't get there with an inconsistent life. Yeah, you can't get to the dream, man. You can't get to the dream, the destiny with an inconsistent life. You know, didn't you read Psalm 23? Dude, come on, you know. You can't get to the destiny without without being consistent because, you know, sheep are afraid of, of running water. And so I, I want to lead you by the peaceful stream. I, there, one of my favorite passages of Scripture is Jesus talking about this same idea in Matthew chapter 11. Look at what he says. He says, this is Jesus talking. He says, walk with me and work with me. Yeah, this is from the message paraphrase. And boy, there's a lot of seeker-driven guys pulling on this text in their, um, in their sermons nowadays. Watch how I do it. What's it? Life. He says, learn the, and say it with me, unforced. Yeah, let's all say it together. Here we go. Unforced. Yeah, learn the unforced rhythms of grace, man. Dude. It's almost as if somebody living in Denver went to, you know, just, you know, one of those places and got themselves some legal marijuana. And uh, it's all about, you know, the unforced rhythms of grace, dude. Yeah, man. Wow. This is unbelievable. I mean, this is not exegesis. This text doesn't mean any of those things. That means let's dance. You know what Jesus is basically saying? saying, will you dance with me? <laughs> really? So Jesus, when he says the unforced rhythms of grace, which is found nowhere in any it's sound uh, translation of the Bible. It's not in the originals. Uh, so what Jesus is really saying there, hey, want to dance? 
It, 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 it's, it's way better than dancing with the stars. It's dancing with Jesus. And what, what, what does dancing, good dancing, take? It takes rhythm, doesn't it? It's like you're moving together, you know? There's this sense, you know where one another move, and they're on a rhythm. It's beautiful to watch. Have you ever watched people who don't know how to dance? <laughs> Go to any wedding, okay? And you got people who don't know how to dance, and they're, you know, it, it, it's a total different thing. Same thing is with running. If somebody goes out, you know, to enter a 5K and they've never done it before, they run. And they're like, and they walk and then they run. They fight it the whole way. But a experienced runner has a rhythm. There's a consistency. Same thing is true with swimming. An experienced swimmer has a rhythm, has a sense of consistency. Same thing is true with life. Some people just fight life just seems like such a struggle to get to church, such a struggle to get through school, such a struggle to get to work, such a struggle to stay together relationally, such a struggle to pay the bills. And then there are other people you look at and life seems so easy. There seems to be a rhythm to their life. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. And he wants to lead me in such a way so that I don't have to fight life, but there's a consistency to my life. Here's his answer to despair in the last part of verse 2. Look at what he says. He renews my what? Strength. I wrote it like this uh, in my notes. is I have hope for the future, not despair. I have hope for the future, not despair. Because what is it that gives us strength? It's hope. Hope is what gives you passion. What robs you of strength or what makes you weak? Despair does. Because despair keeps you on the couch. Despair says, ah, it's not going to work. I've tried it. I've been there. This stuff doesn't work. It's not true. Despair keeps you from persevering. Ah, my marriage is never going to be any good. Why even try? I'll never get that business off the ground. Why even try? I'm never going to get promoted at work. Why even try? This is what Psalm 23 is about, never getting promoted at work, you know, whatever. And so I, you just kind of go to work and hide, really, because you've lost hope. See, hope gives strength. Hope gives passion. Hope gets off the couch. And when I say hope, I'm not talking about a wish. I wish I'd get a raise. I wish we'd get to a good relationship. I'm talking about a hope that believes. A hope that has faith. A hope that knows. A, a, a hope that's kind of like the Joel Osteen kind. You know, you're good enough, and you're the you're the head and not the tail. I am going to experience that. That the dream God put in my heart, I one day will walk through and break through and experience in my life. And it, yeah, so He renews my strength means you're going to experience the dream, man. You're going to have breakthrough and achieve your destiny hope that gets me off the couch no matter what the circumstances may be because it's not if it is when hope empowers hope gives passion hope gives strength and where does that strength come from it says he who's he yeah the shepherd god he renews my strength words i can't do it within my own strength it's his strength paul said it like this maybe you've heard this text notice every text out of context Every single text out of context, although he thinks he's exegeting Psalm 23, he's not. 
In Philippians 4.13, Paul said... Yeah, Philippians 4.13, because, you know, Paul was all about, you know, achieving the destiny that God put into his heart, too, you know. I can do... Well, here it is. I can do what? Let's say it again. Everything. One more time. Everything through Christ who gives me strength. Everything. Well, what is everything? But I don't want you to think about everything globally. I want you to think about your thing. What's your thing? Is it finances? Is it relationships? Is it education? Is it a new career? Is it a new job? I can do all things. So what's your thing? Is it your education, your career, your finances? Yeah, 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 all things, man. Paul says, I can do whatever that thing is. And the reason I can do it is because Christ gives me strength. What does it mean he gives me strength? He gives me hope. uh, Philippians 4.13 is the great career guidance counseling passage of something like that. Hope. He gives me the understanding that he will lead me to the green meadows. He will lead me to the peaceful stream. Why? Because he's my shepherd and I got everything I need. That means that I got everything I need to succeed in my business, in my relationships, in my finances, in my health. So Philippians 4.13 is all about relationships, finances, health. That's a promise from God that you're going to achieve the destiny, dude. And that keeps me going one day after the next. Paul also said when I'm weak, he's strong. So it's this whole incredible thing that God promises us in Psalm 23, that we have everything we need. He's not making promises regarding your, oh man, unbelievable. Succeed no matter what obstacles we might actually face. Look at God's answer to doubt in verse three. Kind of finally move on from verse two to verse three. It says he does what? Guides me along what kind of path? The right path, bringing honor to his name. He guides me along the right path, bringing honor to his name. I wrote it like this. I make decisions with confidence, not doubt. I make decisions with confidence, not doubt. He guides me so that I can make, and I love it, right decisions. So I don't have to doubt. Decisions are so important, aren't they? Wherever you're at today, whether you like where you're at or you don't like where you're at, are not the result of your circumstances. They're the result of what? Your decisions. If you don't like where you are, you, it's because you've made some decisions that have taken you to where you are. If you like where you are, the path that you're on, it's because of the decisions you've made. And it's very easy if you're not careful, knowing the importance of decisions, to start saying, man, did I make the right decision? And some of us are always carrying about some doubt. And we're like always asking people, what do you think? You think I did the right thing? You, you think I ought to go to this school? You think I ought to marry this person? You think I ought to quit this job? You think we ought to do this? You think it, 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 it's, it's just, there's just stress. You know, it's, it's, it's like the person who goes to the store and they buy something. And then they have the moment they buy it, they're like, oh, I shouldn't have bought it. I shouldn't have bought it. They get home. They're like, oh, what do you think? Do you think I should have bought it? And then they take it back. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry. I just shouldn't have bought it. And then the moment they leave the store, they're like, I just should have kept it. I, I, nobody will know. It just, they're just it's just like, oh, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do about my finance. I don't know what to do about my job. I don't know what to do about this relationship. And it becomes an obstacle because until you and I have the confidence 
to know that the decisions we're making are taking us to the right place. Our lives are going to be filled with stress. The wisdom writer said in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not to your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. The NLT says it like this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't miss that. Number two, do not depend upon your own understanding. Number three, seek His will in all that you do. And then... He will show you which path to take. That's a big difference than he will make your path straight. By the way, if he's going to do, he's going to make your path straight, that is not saying he will show you which path to take because then you, oh man. Wow, this is awful. Uh, this is a train wreck in slow motion. I, I, I feel terrible for these people who are under this wolf. This man is literally doing the work of the devil. Show you which path to take. If we will follow the shepherd, he will show us which path to take. Now, that doesn't mean he'll make the path easy. It just means he'll make it clear. I've been at Potential Church now for 15 years, and I can tell you, not one time have I ever seen somebody walk in that back door who wanted to sit up here and start climbing over chairs to get here. I know it's going to blow you away, but every time they walk right down the aisle. I've done several weddings, and not one time have I seen the bride open up the door and then start climbing over the chairs to get to the front of the church. You know what? They always take the aisle. Nobody has to tell them to take the aisle. Nobody's wondering, I wonder if they'll take the aisle or climb over the chairs. Right? No, no, they, they just always take the aisle. Why? Because it is very clear that if you want to get from back there to up here, here's the way you go. And it doesn't mean somebody might not stick out their foot and try to trip you. It just means that it's clear. That's what God's promising. He's promising that he will make the journey from where you're at to where you dream to be. Again, where in the context of Proverbs 3 does it say that God promises, to, you know, in the path of where you're at to where you dream to be, that God's going to show you which path to take? Oh, wow. Hey, wow. Very clear. This is the way that I need to go. There are going to be some challenges along the way, but there can be great confidence that every day I am making decisions that are leading to the dream and the destiny that I have inside of my heart. Really, and wh- why is it that no passage actually says that? That God's going to leave you, you know, lead you to your dream vision that's in your heart. Wow. I, I, I am getting sick to my stomach. This is this bad. So that I can overcome that obstacle and one day experience that in my heart. Because the Lord is my shepherd. I got everything that I need. How about God's answer for fear? And this is one we all deal with, right? Have bad seasons, difficult seasons in life, challenges in life. He says in verse 4, even when I walk through the darkest valley. doesn't say if, doesn't say might. It's going to happen. There are going to be people who stick their foot out and try to trip you. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So this means that you know, when you're experiencing fear on your way to achieving the destiny that, in the dream that God's laid on your heart, God will make it so that you're not afraid to achieve it. 
I will, what's this word? Say it with me again. Not. One more time. Not. When kids are little, we, their first word they ever hear is no. And we want it to be not. I will not be what? I will not be afraid. Even when I go through the most difficult times. Even when it looks like the business is going to go under. Even when it looks like my spouse and I are never going to be able to work this out. And then when the business does go under and the spouse leaves you, you're going to believe that Christianity is not real. Because he's literally taking these passages and making promises from them that God has not made. Ever. Anywhere. Search the scriptures, high and low, in context. Looking for God putting a dream on your heart. And then these passages all show you how he's going to help you achieve that dream and make the destiny come about. Make the business flourish so that you can be a bazillionaire. He's going to make the relationship so hot. I mean, you can't wait to get home from work. I mean, that's what God's going to. Yeah, these passages are not promising that. You know, let, let me contrast this with Paul's life. Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, kind of speaking as a madman because he's not like the super apostles at all. And the weird thing is is that the message that Troy Gramling is giving is very akin to the message that the super, so-called super apostles gave. Here's what Paul says, verse 21, But whatever else, if whatever anyone else dares to boast of, well, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews, the super apostles? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Well, I'm a better one. And he says, I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments. With countless beatings, often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I, I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Yeah, no mention there of uh, the Apostle Paul living the dream, man. You know, you know, <laughs> the business and all that kind of stuff. For him, it was pouring his life out like an offering because of what Christ has done for him. And what did he experience in life? Beatings and hardship and persecution and ultimately martyrdom. Yeah, Nero had his head cut off. Yeah, the kind of Christianity, which isn't Christianity, that Troy Gramling is preaching, it's not the Christianity that the Apostle Paul preached at all. It looks like I'm not going to be able to pay the bills at the end of the month. Even I will not be afraid. Why? Because you... And have you noticed, it's not he, he's not talking about he, the shepherd, or him, the shepherd. Now he's talking to the shepherd. He says, you are close beside me. Well, what does that mean? So he's close beside me. But he, does, he gives us even more details. Look what he says. Your rod and your staff protect and they comfort me. I, I, I put it like this in my notes. It says, I will walk with courage, not run in fear. 
I will walk with courage, not run in fear. There are going to be seasons when you hear the lions roar. Roar! That's scary. All right? And the wolves are going to howl. And all those things are going to... I mean, it's going to be times in your life when it looks dark. See, a shepherd would have to take the sheep to where the food was, to the meadow. And there was a certain part of the season where they had to go to the highlands. And the best way to get to the highlands for the sheep was to go through the valley, not climb all over the mountains, just kind of gradually go up. Now, there were dangers involved in that. But the only way for the sheep to get to the highlands was to go through the valley. God wants to take you and I to the highlands. God has given every single one of us a dream. He died. If the highlands are eternal life, well then, yeah. Let me back this up because you're about to hear a false gospel. And I want you to hear it in context. Here we go. Highlands. God has given every single one of us a dream. He died for our destinies and our purpose. So Jesus didn't die for your sins. He died for your destiny and your purpose. That's a false gospel. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Second, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Read the opening verses. Nowhere in scripture will you see a single passage that says Jesus died for your destiny and your dreams. This is blasphemous. The only way for you and I to get there is to go through the valley. And some of us, when we hear the lions roar, we turn and run. And we don't know where we're running to, but we know what we're running from. And then we end up in some place that we never thought we'd be. Because we're just afraid. How many of you have ever done something dumb because you were afraid? You know what I'm talking about? It's easy to do, isn't it? Because when you get afraid, and you make decisions. No, I want you to walk with a sense of courage because I'm going to be with you. He says, I'm going to comfort you and I'm going to protect you. And he tells us how a shepherd had two tools that he was very proficient with. The first one was a rod about this long, had a knob on one end, a handle on the other. And that shepherd could take it and he could throw it at the lion or the bear. He could hit, he, he used it to protect the sheep. And the shepherd says to you and I, that no matter how loud that lion roars, that no matter how frightening that wolf's howl might be, no matter how many shadows you see, no matter how much of a reality the giants are, you do not have to be afraid because he is my shepherd and I have everything that I need. <clears throat> Right? He's bigger than whatever giant it is that you and I face. But he also had a staff. You know, the staff, the big curved thing that we see all the time. They kind of pull people off the stage when they're up there too long with. And what the shepherd would do is he spent tons of time with his sheep. So he would know which ones were a little bit skittish and frightened. And sometimes when they would be walking along, he'd take his staff and he'd place it just on the back of the sheep. On the front legs, kind of across their back there. Just as a way of saying, I'm here. I know the wolf howled, and I know the lion roared, and I know it's dark, and I know there are shadows, and I know all those dangers are very real. But I'm right here with you. You're not alone. And they would walk along. And it's interesting of how when you talk to somebody who goes through a very difficult time, 
Whether it be a health issue, loss of someone they love, they lose their job, and they're following the shepherd, and you talk to them, and they always say things like this. It was a little bit scary but when I lost my job, but for some reason I wasn't afraid. It was sad that they passed, but there was a peace that I've never experienced before. You know what that is. It's the shepherd's staff. It's God putting his arm around us and saying, I'm here with you. I'm going to see you through this. It's a great benefit of being a believer. See, I feel so bad for those of you who are not Christ followers, who are not following the shepherd. Because you don't have that confidence to you. And there are lots of things in our world that are really scary. But the Lord, as my shepherd, I've got everything I need. He comforts me and he protects me. And then, when I was young, I learned this passage of scripture, Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. What should I be afraid of? And there are times when I just have to say that over and over. I just got to remind myself, God is with me. He's got his rod and he's going to protect me. The Lord is my light and my salvation. What do I have to be afraid of? And then lastly, God's answer to failure. Look what he says in verse five. He says, you prepare a feast for me in the, and where does he prepare it? In the presence of who? You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessing. I, I put it like this in my outline. I succeed, not fail in the presence of competition and challenge. I succeed, not fail in the presence of competition and challenge. Uh, do, do you, go back to the passage. He says, first of all, he says, God, you prepare a what? Feast. Doesn't say fast food. Doesn't say God runs by Boston Market and sets up a nice table. No, no. God prepares a feast. And where does he prepare this feast? Right in the presence of your enemies. Right in the presence of your competition. Right in the middle of every challenge. Right there where they can see what God has done in your life. Matthew said it like this, that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Now, here's what that means. That means that when you start a business, every other business in town may be closing their doors, but you're going to make a profit. Why? Because the... Yeah, no, this does not do that. This, this is not a promise that God's going to make it so that your business succeeds while every business in town is going out of business. Wow. Unbelievable. Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. His integrity's on the line. His character is on the line. And God says, I'm going to do it. I'm not doing it in the back room. I'm doing it right there in front of everybody because I want them to know I am the alpha and the omega. I am the first and the last. I am all powerful, all knowing everywhere at one time, God. <clears throat> so right in the middle of our competition, he anoints our head with oil. That's what they would do with royalty. So it's kind of like God puts a crown on your head. Yeah, so that your competition can't even begin to stand up for you. What happens, though, when your competition is, a, well, a fellow believer? Every other marriage may be struggling because they went through something, and you and your spouse went through the same thing, and yet you're growing more intimate and closer together because the Lord is your shepherd. 
You got everything. You know what that means? Nobody can stop you from getting there. Your boss can't stop you from getting there. The economy can't stop you from experiencing that. You really think that salvation, that this passage in talking about salvation, that the, the terminus is a successful business here on this cursed creation with a world that's fleeting, passing away, and soon to disappear when Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. Really? The environment can't stop you from experiencing that because the Lord is my shepherd. So really, what's the question then? Been one question to this whole teaching. Are you going to let him be your shepherd in 2015? Uh, Unbelievable. Right? I mean, if you look at the last verse of Psalm 23, go to the next verse, verse 6. Surely your goodness and unfailing love, and this is an interesting Hebrew word, will pursue me all the days of my life. So here the word pursue means uh, loyalty. In other words, here's what that passage is saying, is that all these promises that God has has made to you, they're going to follow you all the days of your life. They're not just for a season, they're for your whole life. God is always going to be a God of abundance. God is always going to be a God of courage. Therefore, David says, I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Probably an allusion to eternal life, don't you think? You will be my shepherd. Because that's the question. In 2015, will you allow him to be your shepherd? (sighs) He's not just savior. He's shepherd. Have you made Jesus the shepherd of your life? Wow. Now, make no mistake. I'm not asking you, do you love God? I'm not asking you, do you occasionally come to church? I'm not asking you, do you put some money in that basket every once in a while? I'm not asking you, do you read your Bible? I'm asking you, is is he your shepherd? Because that's a daily, hourly kind of decision. That's the spiritual battle, you might say, of our lives. I know for me, because you know what the problem is? Is everywhere I go, I have this stuff right here called skin. The Bible calls it flesh. And the skin pulls towards the ditch always. It wants to pull my marriage toward the ditch. It wants to pull my finances towards the ditch. It wants to pull my vocabulary towards the ditch. And so every day, every hour of every day, I'm having to decide, am I going to follow him as my shepherd? All these promises are the result of following the shepherd. And we so easily get frustrated with God because we're like, man, I'm not having that, God. And yet I say you're my shepherd. But By the way, the thing he's pointing, I'm not having that would be the, the big dream. I'm not having the dream yet, God. That's what he's referring to. It's not because, well, for some of us, it's our dating life. Say, God, I want you to be my shepherd, but you're making decisions in your dating life that aren't following God. I mean, you've rationalized and you've got reasons. Are you you talking about sexual sins, right? Not jumping on. I'm just telling you. That's not what it means for him to be your shepherd. Uh, Okay. So are you going to give them the forgiveness of sins? Christ shed uh, shed blood on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins? Because Jesus says, I'm the great shepherd, and the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
The Lord is my shepherd doesn't mean I love God and I come to church and I'm doing the best that I can. The Lord is my shepherd means I'm following him. And when he challenges me to live a pure life, I'm following him. Some of us, it's our finances, right? I mean, we got all the reasons, but the truth is, is he's not the shepherd in that area of our lives. And if I take just those two, the percentages tell me that the vast majority of us, he's not the shepherd. Therefore, the vast majority of us may have a half-built house, but we're not really living our dream. And all yeah, you can't live the dream until you're sinless, apparently. When we think about it financially, relationally, business, all those areas, it's going to be a constant battle against the skin. But if I put those six back up here and ask you, which would you choose? Abundance or scarcity? Consistency or inconsistency? In 2015... Which of these do you want in your life? Hope or despair? Confidence or doubt? Courage or fear? Success or failure? The Bible says that these are available to all of us. If If we would just make Jesus the shepherd of our life, not just Lord, your Savior, but shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And my prayer for me and my prayer for you is that in 2015, we will make that decision on a daily, on an hourly. Because Christ died for your dream destiny. He's my, he's my shepherd. Notice he's not calling people to repentant faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. It comes to trying to decide whether we're going to do this or do that. We'll ask ourselves the question. He's my shepherd. What honors him? Because God created you to give you this. Created me. He created you to give you the dream, destiny, man. To give me this. Would you bow your head? Nope. Not with you. That was painful. Wow. Um, Do I need to belabor the point? Um, Just so you know, potential church is no closer to actually being a real church yet. In fact, they're much farther away from it now than when I first noted the fact that they were no longer a church. They were just a church in Potentia. That was behavior modification in order that you can achieve the dream that Jesus died for. Not that he died for your sins. Different gospel altogether. Scratching, itching ears? Oh, yeah. Big time. Completely inept at handling God's word? Evident. Pray for Troy Gramling and pray for the people at potential church that god would rescue them from the fire because that's where they're at right now all right we're at the end of another edition of fighting for the faith if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my email address is talkback at fighting for the faith.com or you can subscribe on facebook facebook.com forward slash pirate christian follow me on twitter my name there at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.